he's getting everything set up so I can do this myself. So, all right. All right. Thank you, Scott. Well, good evening, church. Um, Tonight, I want to share with you one of the most thrilling adventures that I've had, but one of those kinds of adventures that will often scare you speechless at times. Uh, One of those adventures that's filled with twists and turns and excitement and fear and successes and failures. It's all about evangelism. Uh, When it comes to the adventure of evangelism, it seems that those who have to have everything detailed and planned out to a T and scripted may become frustrated or flustered when things don't go A, B, then C. But then on the other side, while those who like to fly by the seat of their pants, they often find themselves completely unprepared to navigate the course of a, a conversation. For many of the reasons that I've just shared among other issues of fear and inadequacies with the Bible, oftentimes people totally miss out on the, the pleasure and the joy of the ministry of evangelism. Um, it's hard at times, and then at other times it seems like it couldn't be easier. Uh, let's be real here. Me, personally, I could speak easily in front of a thousand people on a Sunday morning and proclaim Jesus Christ and then be scared out of my mind when I have to hand out a gospel tract to the cashier at Walmart on Monday morning. And while we're still being honest, I'm sure it's safe to say that most Christians are scared of evangelism more than death itself. With death, death, we at least know where we're going, right? With evangelism, oftentimes we don't. Well, I want to get us to Acts chapter 17. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible, but I'm going to lead us to that moment real quick to kind of tell you a little bit apart, a little bit about Paul's journey to Athens before he got there, and how that relates to us today as we talk about the adventure into the unknown. The Apostle Paul was all too familiar with the unknown adventure. In Acts 16.6, Paul sought to preach the gospel in Asia until the Holy Spirit forbid him. That often puzzled me until we met opportunities ourselves in the last two trips like we've taken where the Lord deterred our plans to something else. Paul then sought to proclaim Jesus in Bithynia, Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them, it says in chapter 16, verse 7. Paul then journeys in a different direction, and he lands in Troas, where he has a, what they call the Macedonian call, a vision by night of a man calling him to come and help them. That leads Paul to travel into Europe for the first time. The gospel enters Europe, and he preaches, and the first person gets saved there, a woman named Lydia. The second person in the city of Philippi then was a slave girl who was demon-possessed. Well, that that conversion stirred some things up in Philippi and got Paul and Silas, a good beating, thrown into a dungeon where they ended up singing and praising God at night while they were fastened in the stocks. And following this event came an earthquake which literally shook things up to the point that the third person got saved, which was the jailer there, the guard in the prison, following him, his whole family. Now, the the chief magistrate in the city of Philippi, once he learned of Paul's Roman citizenship, urged Paul and Silas to get out of town because they recognized that what they had done had been unlawful. They then traveled to Thessalonica, preached in the synagogue, which was customary at that time. Paul would always start in the synagogue where some Jews turned to faith in Jesus. And chapter 17, verse 4 tells us, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. This spurred a ride in town, once again problems, so they sneak away uh, by night into Berea. And then the Jews there were more welcoming to Paul and his message and were eager to search out the things that he was preaching to see if they were true. And verse 12 of chapter 17 says, Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Now, once again, those pesky Thessalonians caught wind of Paul's presence in Berea and they came after him there. And the crowds of Berea were stirred up once again, and Paul again had to sneak out of the place, get out of town where his adventure would land him in Athens, Greece, the location of modern-day news, if you keep up with the, the, the news today. Acts 17, verse 16 is where we will begin. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Let's stop there. Important thing I find to note here is that Paul is waiting on his companions, Silas and Timothy, to get where he is in Athens. Um, I, I find this important that Paul is 
pretty much by himself at this point. He's, his companions are behind. He's waiting for them to get there. And I think back to the Gospels. As Jesus sent his disciples out in, in pairs to preach into the, the local towns, a couple of things I find important about that when Jesus did it was he sent people out in two or more to, to, to uh, testify, to confirm the message that was being sent by two or more witnesses. But also, as you and I know, when you share the Gospel, if you have ever shared the Gospel you find so much more courage when you got a partner. You find so much more comfort when you got a friend right by your side. And I think that helps. We find strength in numbers. But one thing I've also learned is that when I go share the gospel with more than one lost person, they find strength in numbers as well. And Paul is here in unknown territory, and he has no one but himself and Jesus Christ to look, for, look to for courage and wisdom. Now verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Let's stop again. Paul is taking the gospel, as was his custom, into the synagogue first. Now, we're not saying that going into the synagogue, preaching in this place of worship would have been any less risky but Paul had a people to start who had a fa- to work with who had a foundation in the scriptures where he could build on from the Old Testament and point them to Jesus as Messiah. But the important conjunction here and in the marketplace shows us that, that Paul went outside of the synagogue and he took the good news to the public square. He took the gospel on the streets. That seems a whole lot more risky. When we talk about getting outside of this building, it gets a lot more risky to us. Next, verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And here comes the ridicule. Listen, when we, when we get out and put your neck on the line in evangelism, be ready for, for ridicule. None of us are immune. Not even the Apostle Paul was immune from facing ridicule. Evangelism is risky every time you do it. And he sa- it says here that some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Why would they say this? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Paul is speaking to a group of people who don't have the background that you and I have. They don't, they're not living in the Bible belt. They don't, they don't have this background of knowing who this person Jesus is. Paul cannot rely on familiar prophecies to pull out of the Old Testament and say, Moses said, because they say, who is Moses? So he had to find a common place. In Greek life, when a god died, he just stayed dead. Now Paul was preaching to them about this God-man Jesus and his resurrection, and it was very strange to them to hear. So Paul has to find another way. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So now we have Paul finding himself in a strange place, an unknown territory with nothing more than a message and Paul's Savior. He has a captive audience, people who are eager to hear what he has to say, who knows nothing of the gospel. They have no understanding of the scripture. To, to rely on, for Paul to reference. So where does Paul begin? That's, the, that's where we're headed next, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, In verse 16, it tells us that Paul was walking through Athens and he's noticing all the idols and he's being disturbed by all the idolatry that he sees in Athens. And the Athenians were careful to acknowledge that that there had to be more gods than they knew to worship. And so they set up an altar to an unknown god to make sure that they're covering all their bases. Now, Paul, I believe, can recognize on the bright side of things that the Athenians are closer to salvation than the average atheist because Hebrews 11 tells us that he who comes to God must believe that he exists. And we can see that the Athenians have no problem believing in the existence of a God. They just have it all wrong. So Paul establishes a starting place with them by pointing out this altar to an unknown God. In this way, in what Paul did, we have to share Christ in a way that the world understands. 
And we need to start where they are instead of just where we are. That's a very important point for us to make today. We need to, when we're witnessing to somebody, start where they are, not just where we are, so that we can make a bridge to the gospel. Now, verse 24 says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Paul is now pointing them to this God, and he is saying everything that is consistent with Scripture without reciting Scripture And he's making the point that your Greek gods are specific and they are limited. But our God is not specific and he's not limited as yours. The one true God, he made everything. And he rules them all. One writer said it like this. Poseidon was the God of the sea. In essence, Paul was saying, big deal. I'm telling you about the God who made the seas and the earth. The Greeks viewed Zeus as the supreme lord of the gods. But Paul had come to tell about the God who was both Lord and creator of the heavens and the earth. And like the people of Athens in Paul's time, our culture here in our time has difficulty of many times understanding that there's only a one true God. We live in a, a culture that is very polytheistic or believing uh, in, in a multiplicity of gods out there and all leading to one place. But we must not let that deter us from entering into the conversation of the gospel. It can be very intimidating when we approach people from different worldviews that we don't have all the answers. But we do have the truth. And just as we talk about the difference between the truth and between counterfeits, the more you understand the truth the better you can, you, can note, you can dispel all the counterfeits. You can, you can line up the Word of God with what you know, and when they say things that are inconsistent with what you know to be the truth, then you can point out the differences. Paul goes on as he talks about the God who made the worlds and all, world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. When we look and we search far and wide all around the world, all other religions in the world are doing nothing other than trying to please their God. And they're trying to work and serve him. And Paul is making the point to them that our God needs nothing from you But you need everything from him. Paul is not hedging around a difficult conversation. And in verse 26, he goes on to describe God. And he said, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and good grief. I'm getting attacked. Persecution. I don't know if y'all saw that, but a dirt dauber just landed on my head. Uh, For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. They didn't know the prophets of old, for Paul to reference, they, but they had their own history, and Paul understood that. And so he points to their philosophers. They did know them, and they, he quoted from Aratus of Cilicia, who says, In him we live and move and have our being. And then the poem Paul cited had been composed to honor Zeus, not Yahweh. But, God put their, but Paul put their familiar text to a new use. We come from God, not the other way around. And then verse 30, therefore, Excuse me, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that people everywhere should repent. This is where the conversation turns. Up until this point, through verse 29, Paul is having a conversation. But when Paul gets to verse 30, he comes to something that has to happen with every one of us as we share the good news. There has to be a call for action. Paul cannot just simply have a conversation for a long time telling them about God. There has to be a point when you're sharing the good news that everything has to turn to a call for action. When he says the word should, that's the key word. Every man should repent. Paul is declaring to them a fresh start in Christ. It's time for them to turn from their past sin and their ignorance. Our generation must understand that they are separated from God by their sin 
But he has up to this point been patient with them. And in verse 31, he tells, tells them the reason why they should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul pointed out three realities that would be uncomfortable for his listeners. And you and I also, when we talk to people, we're going to have to say some things that may feel uncomfortable. Number one, Paul pointed out he prof- uh, God, the God Paul professed had been overlooking their ignorance. And Paul was speaking to a group of people who hi- were highly esteemed for all of their, their wisdom and intelligence. But God had overlooked their ignorance, Paul said. And God had been patient with them while they built their altars to all these gods, including the unknown God. Number two, the Athenians had to repent and find a new way of living because they would be judged for their response to this one true God. It's important that we call people to repentance. And then number three, the response of all people would be judged by Jesus, whom Paul's God had resurrected from the dead. And it's clear that Paul's ministry, as he proclaims the gospel, is completely in step with the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we can see all three of those things in Paul's preaching. Concerning sin, Paul calls them to repent from their idolatry and their ignorance. Concerning righteousness and judgment, Paul reveals to them that as God has appointed a man, and in verse 16, we see that he clearly represented that this man was Jesus Christ himself, who will judge them in righteousness. And by the way, Paul says, this judge who is God also died and then was raised to life. Now the response. The response to Paul was no different than the response to every one of us who will put our necks on the line to share the gospel. Paul was rejected. Paul had people who stayed on the fence. And Paul had people who had come to faith in Christ. He had all those responses. So be encouraged, as I was when I struggled on this mission trip and I came back to Acts 17 and recognized that Paul didn't always have it easy either. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul had people who rejected him. He had people who were still on the fence. Verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You and I must remember that our best efforts in evangelism might might not have much to show for in this life, just like many missionaries throughout church history who have gone places and spent a decade and never saw a single convert. Paul only saw a few come to faith in Christ, but Paul knew it was worth it. It's worth it, church. Evangelism is hard and nerve-wracking, but it's worth it. And so tonight, for the remainder of our time, I want to tell you about 10 nervous Christians who went on an adventure to share their faith. I had the privilege during the week of July 2nd through 8th to take a group of of people to Washington, D.C. during our 4th of July weekend as the nation celebrated our independence and we would go to share the gospel with them. And along with me are these good old folks, Cody Moore, Emily Williford, Kelsey McKissick, Nicole and Bailey Allen, Taylor Gray, Nicholas and Rebecca Scott, and Levi Otts too. We'll, We'll even take him. All right, so, so even with those people, look, I'm not much of a foot person, ever, you know, if you had asked me, but God is. And those are 20 beautiful feet who go to share good news. And I'm very proud of that group of people who put their necks on the line oftentimes and faced rejection time and time again, and we just had to celebrate it. But let me go on and just tell you a few little highlights of that trip to hopefully encourage you the work that God is doing. Um, well, when we first got there, God knows... God knows when you need encouragement, even before you need it. He knew we needed encouragement before we shared the gospel with the very first person. And so he led us to this guy named Grant. Grant was from Chicago, and from the moment we parked our van and our trailer, before we even got into the hotel, Grant walks up to me and says, Are you having a church service tomorrow? I said, No, sir, we're here to share the gospel this weekend while the nation celebrates. And he said, Really? Can I go with you? 
I said, well, why not? Meet us tomorrow morning at this time. And sure enough, he showed up. Now, Grant and it's his sister and his, his niece who were here visiting uh, from South Korea. And Grant, they joined us the next morning, took some tracks, and hit the streets of D.C. God knew we needed that encouragement right from the very beginning. And my first thought was this, that I said to the rest of the team, and I'll, I'll say it to you. How many of you would see a group of strangers sharing the gospel and be willing to put yourself out there and say, hey, can I go share with you? I've never met a person like that, but God knew we needed that, and it was very encouraging. Along the way, as we kind of hit the streets, you could see there's Rebecca on the prowl, got her tracks in hand, ready to share the gospel. Everybody's trying to find somebody and just trying to work up the nerve to get break the ice. You know, it's always hard to start that first one. And so we, we got going, and we, we were on the metro, and I, I talked to the first person that I had an encounter with on the metro, and then the, the, the ride cut it short, so I quickly gave her a track. And we got out. As we get to the top of the escalators coming out of the, the metro area, there's tons of people there, and the, the Church of Scientology people are handing out all their stuff as people are coming up. And so half the team said, hey, let's do the same thing as they are. So they just started handing out gospel tracts to people as they came out, kind of mixed it up. But then finally when we left that area, we were, it was kind of thin, the crowd was thinning out, and we're, we're walking over to the Washington Mall and um, see a gentleman kind of by himself filming, doing some things. And that's the gentleman I'm talking to, if you could see it right there, kind of, kind of a, little, a little dark there, but I'm right there in the blue shirt talking to him. He's a young man. His name was Isaiah. And I said, hey, hey I'm, I can strike up small talk with about anybody. And I, so I was just like, hey, man, what are, you, what are you out here doing? And finding out he's just visiting for the weekend. He was all by himself. He's, in, he's trying to get into the Navy. And, um, and he told me his name was Isaiah. I said, hey, my, my son's name is Isaiah, and he's celebrating his birthday tomorrow on the 4th of July. And he was, that just made him really excited. And I said, where are you from, Isaiah? And he said, oh, we're from Knoxville. I said, wow, we stayed in Knoxville last night. Really? And, and so I, I said, Isaiah, we're out here just talking to people about what happens after somebody dies. We're out, we came all the way here because we wanted to share about our faith. And I said, Isaiah, um, I said, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And he said, well, my father has a, a, a radio ministry back at home. And I said, really? I said, that's great, Isaiah. I said, but as you know, that no one can go to heaven just because their parents are Christian, right? And so that led to a further conversation where I find out, Isaiah says, hey, yes, I profess faith in Jesus Christ, but I'm not in fellowship with a church. I just watch it every Sunday morning. And so that led to a long conversation where we just stood right there next to the Washington Monument, which is just a neat feeling, and just talked to him about the importance of being uh, dedicated to the local body. And what that means not only for him, but also the rest of the believers of that body. And then also just pointing him to the fact that, you know, he agreed that time was short and that, that Jesus could be coming back soon. And Isaiah, you need to get yourself ready and you need to be a part of God's mission. And you got to do that through the local church. Will you let me pray with you? And he let me pray for him right there on the sidewalk. And so uh, after it was over... I just kind of started this on the trip. I was like, hey, man, can I get a selfie with you? I got family back at home I miss, and I want them to meet people that I meet along the way, and I can tell them how to pray for you. So there's Isaiah from, from uh, Knoxville. So we went on, uh, and we continued to evangelize. These pictures are in no particular chronological order, but you'll see some really cool pictures here as Nicholas is sharing the gospel with a homeless woman right outside Five Guys uh, Burger joint that we just ate in, came out with a little bit of extra food, gave her a track, and there's a, a lot of homeless people right there. And it seemed like God gave us a, a big ministry among homeless people. And um, so there's, there's uh, Nicholas talking to them, Cody on the street talking to somebody, one of these vendors. Here's a homeless gentleman looking at one of our Does He Know You tracks. Um, Levi Ott sharing with another homeless person. Bailey Allen sharing with somebody on the street. Now, Bailey had a, a, a little uh, scare while she was witnessing to one homeless guy. Now, we, we, we roll in a crew. I mean, you know, it's always about, you know, numbers, strength in numbers. And it's like, hey, hey, guys, let's watch out for, for each other. But Bailey was witnessing to a homeless gentleman who then wanted to get close to her and, and kind of grabbed her and wanted, told her he was a pervert and he wanted a kiss and he liked her feet and said all kinds of just scary things. And uh, she got the track to him, but she got out of Dodge. I mean, she, was, she left him behind. I don't, I don't think my boyfriend, my daddy, my mama like that, you know, so she was getting out of there. 
So, um, but we just kept on. This one was a really cool one, and I was proud of Nicholas for this one. Uh, this was a lady who has given over 30 years of her life to camp out in front of the White House and protest the United States' relationship to Israel. Nicholas said to me, anybody gave her a track, anybody witnessed to her, and uh, kind of off the side, I thought, in 30 years, surely somebody's witnessed to her. I told him, he's like, well, we haven't. <laughs> he just took off. I was like, go for it, man. You're awesome. And so uh, here's just a close-up. She sat there and read that entire track. And uh, it was crazy. And these of y'all have been to D.C. I'm sure you've seen her. But uh, she looks like a, a lady who has a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of pain and sin in her life. Um, so we stood outside the, the White House, the park across the street, which happened to be our best place of witnessing. Washington, D.C., if you've never been there or witnessed there, is the hardest place I've ever been to witness. New Orleans was way easier than Washington, D.C., D.C., people were more close to the gospel, people we tried to talk to. But in front of the White House, we found the most success. And so we took advantage of it, and it was our last thing to do on the trip. So you got to understand, when we've been in Washington, D.C. at this point for two and a half days, and we've probably given out less than 100 Bible tracts, and we took thousands with us, we were struggling with discouragement. There's a lot of discouragement that came with that. When we got in front of the White House, things started to open up. And there's Emily Williford uh, witnessing to some people and behind Kelsey being the bodyguard. She's checking things out. And uh, Taylor Gray talked to this gentleman who eventually rejected the, the Bible track, gave it back to her and as if he had already had one, which he didn't, but you get rejected a whole lot. Uh, talk to these two guys, uh, Patrick from Nigeria in the middle and Marvin, his nephew from Canada, and was able to sit and witness with them. Marvin was very quiet through the whole conversation. Patrick was very open with me, and we just had a lot of dialogue. But Marvin sat quietly and just listened and read his Bible tract the whole time we talked. Um, so, anyways, I want to share you a little video. You can just see kind of a little footage that I put together. But you can see this. We're standing right in front of the White House, and we found this to be the best part and the reason one reason in part is this little bible track this little interesting track that has some weird letters on the front and bailey allen would just she found it the niche there she is witnessing to some people right there and she found the best thing to do was to take this track go up to people and say hey can you figure out what this says on the front it's kind of like a weird license plate and then she would say hey let me read to you what's on the back of this thing and and we found that this basically went like hotcakes more than any other thing in Washington, D.C., because on the back, it says, did you figure it out? It says, does he know you? You see, many people claim to know Jesus, but the important question is, does he know you? If you go to the White House and stand outside the gate and tell the guard that you know the president, he probably won't let you in. But if the, guard, if the president comes out and says he knows you, they will let you in. That is the same thing the Bible says about Judgment Day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then the track goes on to present the rest of the gospel. And that illustration, as you're standing in front of the White House talking about the president, just was so real, and it, it became easier to hand out along the way. We found ourselves just an interesting thing. We were off most of the time, seemed like we were the minority everywhere we went. There were so many Indians in this area. I, I don't know why, but almost everybody I talked to was from some other place other than the United States. Uh, really fascinating. Well, the trip had its challenges along the way, and not just by people, but by weather. And this was just a screenshot I took in Washington, D.C., while we were standing in that. Now, when we were out on the Washington Mall during the 4th of July, a thunderstorm decided to come through, and there's no place to hide. There wasn't umbrellas and raincoats. And so we're all just standing in the middle of that storm and just running, trying to find a place to go. And so did everybody else. So we ran for several blocks, and uh, blocks there feel like a mile apiece. Uh, they're really big. And we just kept going through the rain, block after block, trying to get to the Hard Rock Cafe. That's where we were supposed to eat supper that night. And we finally made it. And by the time we made it to the Hard Rock Cafe, I mean, we, there wasn't a garment on our body that was dry. I mean, we were drenched from head to toe. And we get in, and they say it's a three-and-a-half-hour wait because evidently the rest of Washington, D.C. wanted to go there during the rain as well. So we had to leave and run back into the rain, and then Bailey Allen found this nice burger joint where we got to go in and dry off, and there's Levi after he was drenched. 
uh, with all his beautiful hair. Um, so, so that's when we came to the point, as I looked at the weather and saw that our last day in D.C. was totally going to be rained out. And this is not the first time we faced this on one of these mission trips. And so we knew what to do, just pray, and then start searching the weather map. And that's kind of where we, how we end up the next place every time. So we went to the hotel that night, and I told everybody, look, we're not going to be able to do anything in D.C. tomorrow, scratch all the plans, all the itinerary, we're going to figure out a brand new adventure. And that's always fun. And so uh, we went back to the hotel, and Levi and I spent a lot of time I was praying, and, and then we was both searching out the weather. And basically, you couldn't go anywhere north or east or west or south. There was so much rain. And basically, the, uh, the, the desk clerk helped me determine where I was going to go almost because I went to him asking, can we cancel the last day while we're here? Maybe we can just drive to a whole other state or something. we got to get away from here. And uh, he said, well, uh, this was 7 o'clock. He said, well, if you came to me at 3 o'clock, we could have canceled. It's like, well, great. So, all right, so go find the next plan. So we go and figure, okay, we got to come back here tomorrow night, so we got to find a place that we could do a round trip in one day and still get outside of this rain. Well, the only way was north, and the closest big city was Philadelphia, which was two and a half hours away. And so after a, a good long time of researching that, that's where we decided we were going to Philly and uh, figure it out as we went, looked up what the main attractions were there, where we thought the most people would be, and that's where we would go. And so we got there, took us a while to find a place to park, but once we did, we were about a 40-minute walk from the first location, the closest location that we needed to get to. But no sweat. We're here to share the gospel, so we'll just share it as we walk, right? That's going along the way. And so here's some of the team as they're walking the streets of Philadelphia. We put part of the team on one side of the street, and then we put part of the team on the other side of the street. And there we are in Chinatown during, during that time. But again, encouragement, God knows what we need. God had called an audible for a reason. He had sent us to a new place, and you could find, we could see why once we got there. Everything took on a whole new meaning in Philadelphia. I was very discouraged, and I was honest with the team as I struggled and battled that in my own life. And as I got off in Philadelphia, I was ready to go head first and give it all I could first thing. And God knew exactly what I needed, and it was this man. He was the first person I walked to, and I said, Excuse me, sir, did you get your, your free $1 million today? Man, it's a big pack of money. He said, Praise the Lord, I'm a pastor. And let me tell you, that was a blessing. After talking to him, I felt invincible. <laughs> I felt like nothing could stop us at that point. This man was like T.D. Jakes, but scriptural, if I could put it that way. If you've ever seen T.D. Jakes preach, you see that fire in his bones? You see that? Okay, so it's like T.D. Jakes in my face. He's got my shoulder and everybody else could see this. They kind of walked on. They were still witnessing to people. But this went on for about 20 minutes. And he held my shoulders. And he said, Bobby, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And he just looked me in the eye, and he just preached the gospel at me for like 20 minutes. And I said, amen, 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 over and over and over. And Pastor Mumford was his name. And he just grabbed me, and he hugged me, and he just prayed over me right there on the street. And anybody who was anywhere close could hear every word that man said. He said, I wish I could go with you. I'm in the middle of business right now. He said, but can I have some tracks? Because if I didn't have something to do, I'd be right by you doing this. And so he gave me his contact information to follow back up with him. But that, he was a blessing in disguise right there. God put him as the first person I would talk to that day in Philadelphia. And from that point on, nothing could stop us, it felt like. And so we went on the way. And right outside the Liberty Bell, we were leaving out. And these two guards there, Nicole approached him and struck up a conversation. It's so easy to strike up small talk, just find something fun to talk about. And she, would, she started talking about how big that guy was. He's so tall. And she's like, Cody, Nick, Levi, y'all come over here. We found some extra guys to get in the tall guys club or something like that and introduced them. And then they started asking us. Our shirts were the conversation striker all the time. We had these gospel explosion shirts, and oftentimes people thought we were some gospel group. They thought we had something to sing. Uh, I don't know if anybody but Kelsey could sing on that group. I'm not sure. But, uh, but, you know, that always started the conversation. And Nicole 
just went through and told them what we were out there doing. They're looking at Bible tracts. They, they, they took them from her, and she shared with them what we were doing. And so that was just a really cool uh, opportunity, and we were outside in a park right in front of, there's Levi, right in front of the Independence Hall where they signed the Declaration of Independence, and we just started witnessing the people there. This was very early on during our day. Some took it, some didn't, but still very motivated to share the gospel with these people. It seemed like God knew when to put the people in place to encourage us. Grant from Chicago, the very first day we show up, he's number one. We're in the Smithsonian, Washington, D.C., and we're going to see the Star Spangled Banner, and we come around the corner, and they don't want you taking any pictures in there. And we all got our gospel explosion shirts on, and the guard's like, are y'all some kind of singing group? No, sir. No, sir. We're, we're actually from central Arkansas, and we've come to share our faith in Jesus Christ. I decided uh, after a couple of days that, you know what, I'm not going to try to be covert at all. I'm just going to do like Carmen Lane and my wife Rebecca and just be right up front and say, I'm out sharing my faith in Jesus Christ. And it worked. And I, I told this guy this, and he said, praise the Lord. I'm a Christian. And I'm so thankful that y'all have come here to do it because our city needs it. And it was just another moment of encouragement in a time when we were discouraged. And then, and then we had, I didn't tell this earlier, but as we stood in front of the White House, and I'm witnessing to this gentleman from the Caribbean, talking to him, and all along I had this uneasy feeling because the Secret Service is staring at me. And um, it's because, you know, I'm holding a big wad of money, and I'm talking to people. And... Uh, and I, I'm talking, and I look over, and I see him staring at me, and I was like, well, I just initiate the conversation. So I said, uh, hey, you want to see what I got here? And he came on over, and I said, uh, he said, what is that? And I said, oh, it's just look, made to look like a million-dollar bill. And I said, but it's all about good news. We're out sharing our faith in Jesus Christ today. And then I tried to be a little tricky. I was like, hey, would you like to hold one to examine it? <laughs> and he's like, no, I can't do that, but keep up the good work. And, and those were just those little moments of encouragement that God sends along the way for Christians as they get out there and they try to do it, as they try to do, the good, uh, do this work of evangelism. But back to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love took on a whole new meaning for us. As we come into contact person after person, the stark contrast with Washington, D.C., this is no exaggeration when I say this, but over 90% of the people we encountered that day took our, our tracks from us. Nothing, nowhere else has ever really been like that. But the people took the tracks from us, and we'd been there for about seven hours. We walked uh, at least nine miles. I kind of had a pedometer keeping track of stuff. We walked nine miles that day and over 30 miles in the whole trip, but nine miles alone in Philadelphia. And the people were just gobbling up the gospel from us. It was so easy to give out. Talking about Paul as he tries to build a bridge for the gospel, I went up to three guys. I mean, they were, they were just thugs. These three gentlemen, they're sitting on the street corner. They look like the guys that you want to avoid. And I wanted to avoid. But then there's a piece of my heart that goes back to the days before I was a Christian. And those are the kind of guys I'd hang out with. And I, even though now I feel a lot more uneasy around them, I was like, i got to go give them a track. And so I walked up to the guys, you know, and I'm trying to speak their, say things in a way that will get their attention. I was like, hey, man, did you get your big money today? <laughs> What's big money? <laughs> I said, this big money. <laughs> and he was like, he's just giving this look the whole time. And I said, here, here. And I got him to hold it. I said, look at that on the back. It's got all good news. And he, he was looking. He's like, what's that in your other hand? I said, oh, this, this is a million dollars. I said, but unfortunately, I can't cash it for you today. So he took that one too. And we were just constantly moving. There's always the balance of having conversation, building conversation, but also moving on. The idea of gospel explosion. We're trying to get the gospel as far and wide and fast as possible while we have the chance. And so we're constantly moving. The team's all around in different places, and we've got to stay together. But we moved on. And the thing I want to say with that story is this. Be real with people. Be friendly with people. Be personal with them and try to have fun along the way. People can sense it. People can sense when you seem to have joy at what you're doing. It gets their attention. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Again, I said we're intimidated at times and troubled. And handling rejection can be tough. And so here's a little bit of rejection 
right there, that's a, that's a couple who rejected me or a woman who did. This married couple in, in front of Independence Hall. And I went up and I started to talk to them. And the husband was open to me, but the wife didn't want anything to do with me. And she wanted me away fast. And so I, 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 I just left. And, and, you know, sometimes you just hang your head and you wish for more. But we had that in front of National Archives, an old gentleman with a cane. I, I believe Nicholas, uh, somebody tried to witness to him, give him a track. Once he realized what it was, he was like, I know where I'm going. It's like, where? And he said that, well, when I die, I'm just dead. And he's basically going to turn to dirt. And I said, are you certain of that, sir? And he said, I am certain of that. And he walked off and wouldn't have anything else to do with us. In front of the World War II Memorial, this guy named Carl and his niece from China were there and um, went up and tried to give them a track, and they rejected it. But I learned to take, not to take no for an answer. I was, got to be where I wasn't a pushy person at all. I just found another way. And oftentimes what I found is um, after somebody rejected me, I could still get the track in their hand by striking up a conversation. So I walk up to somebody like, like the guy, uh, Carl, and I'm like, excuse me, sir, did you get your free $1 million today? And he's like, mm, I don't want that. You know, he, he was standoffish and ready to move on. It's like, hey, hey, are you from around here? And he's like, no, I'm from so-and-so. And I was like, oh, really? That's cool. I said, we're from central Arkansas. And I just start asking him all kinds of questions about his life, what he does, this and that. Next thing I know, I got the track in his hand. I'm like, look, man, we're here talking about our faith in Jesus Christ. And I know a lot of people believe a lot of different things. What happens after you die? But this is what we believe. And I said, and I got it all right here, and I'd like to put that in your hands. And he took it. And that happened over and over, whether they were just trying to get rid of me or whatever. Then there was a vendor lady in Philadelphia. She, we went to her because we were all dying of thirst, and we tried to buy 10 people a drink. And before I pulled out the real cash, I made the mistake of trying to show her my track. I think you know, she, was, she was a foreign lady. She didn't speak good English, and I think she thought I was trying to give her counterfeit or something. If y'all remember, she was like, oh, no, 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 no. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I got real money, too. <laughs> I pulled out the real money. She kept trying to give it back, but I'm mean. I won't take them back, man. Once they do it, they got to throw it away for I'll take it back. So, uh, and then there was the homeless man in Philly. You'll see we got a lot of strange looks, like people like Cody. He got strange looks, like that guy. He's trying to hand him a track. And then this guy right here, I gave him a track. I got it in his hand, and then he said, what is this? And I told him what the gospel, what it was about the gospel. And he was like, no, take it back. No, no, here, here. And he probably said it 20 times. Here, here, here. I said, Bailey, do you still have your sandwich that we packed for lunch? And she said, yeah, yeah. And she pulled it out, and she started handing it to him. So there you see him. In one hand, he's got her sandwich, and the other hand's reaching out trying to give me that track back. And he's like, here, here. And I said, sorry, sir, the track comes with the sandwich. And so <laughs> and then I just turned and walked away. Um, so, so anyways, be prepared for rejection and discouragement. As a, as a, a pastor, just as a pastor, be honest with you. As a team leader, I struggled with this like anyone else. And I was challenged in Washington. There were a lot of things there to distract people. And I became, became more and more intimidated throughout the rejections, not wanting to interrupt people. And then the Holy Spirit reminded me of a passage that Nicole Allen had prayed during our team meeting before we left for the trip, and in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And in that, I found that it was very important for me as a pastor to, to lead them by example. They knew I was struggling, but at, at the same time, I had to stick my neck out on there and be their leader. And that was very challenging for me, but it was important for them to know that I struggled the way they did. And then Acts 17 was another important text that gave me courage. People mocked Paul, and they didn't always give him an amen after he shared. And he didn't always see great numbers of people saved, and I needed to remember that along the way. Things don't always work out on paper. The Holy Spirit will oftentimes have plans different than you and I do and send us an entirely different location. Let me wrap this up. As we finished up our time, we went over to the, the famous Rocky Steps in Philadelphia where Rocky runs up thinking there's going to be a lot of people there to share the gospel with. And there wasn't a whole lot of people, but that side of Philly and the more in the business area, people were a lot less receptive. But when we got downtown, everybody would take it. So we stop at Rex's Pizza, and we find pizza enough, big enough, 
for that girl to eat right there, man. Man, Emily is something else. I learned a lot about her along this trip. And, uh, but we found some big pizza by the slice. And these two awesome girls right here helped us afford it at a much cheaper rate. When I told them what we were doing, I started to share with them that we were sharing our faith in Jesus. And I wanted to give them a track. They said, since you've done so much for our city, we want to bless you. And so she, they started working their menu, trying every way to give us the cheapest numbers possible. And so at the very end, we took these tracks I brought intentionally. Every time we go into a restaurant, and it's a folder, and I put cash in it, and it's a gospel track that illustrates the tip to Jesus, all right? So we would do those kinds of things, and we gave both of them a tip, said, hey, can I get a picture for, with you? And they just loved it, and they wanted pictures of us after that. So I want to share with you my last and most favorite encounter to end our time is a, a way also to tell you about the gospel. This is a guy I met after church on Sunday. We went to a church at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and the church service lasted two hours and 15 minutes, and it charged me. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. And we had walked out of there, and not very far outside of the church, come across this guy, and he says, Excuse me, sir, do you have some money for some food? I said, as a matter of fact, I've got food. And so I sat down with him and pulled out my sandwich and um, introduced myself to him, told him where I was from. I said, what's your name? He said, Clyde. I said, Clyde, that was my grandfather's name. He's like, oh, really? I said, yeah. And I said, my grandfather passed away several years ago. And that's what I was out here talking about. And uh, I, said, I said, Clyde, what do you think happens after, after you die? He said, I don't know. I think I'll come back as somebody else. So you sure of that? No. He was a real nice guy. He was in his 20s. I, I, I speculate he's a real young man. I just asked him, God, how did you get out here? And he said, abusing drugs, lost my job, everything, and trying to get back on my feet. And, and uh, we just sat and talked, and I, I, started, I said, Clyde, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? This is what I really want to talk to you about. And he was so receptive. He, I don't think he ever broke eye contact with me. Um, we, we talked for so long, we almost missed our next place to be. But Clyde, I asked him, Clyde, if you consider yourself a good person. He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, most of us would when we compare ourselves to one another, right? I said, if you had to compare yourself to God, I wonder what that would look like. I said, Clyde, have you ever stolen anything? He said, yes, sir. And I said, what do you call someone who steals things? He said, a thief? I said, that's right. I said, I was a thief once. I got in trouble, and I had to sit before a judge because of it. And I tried to just connect with him, my life, with his life as much as possible. And I said, Clyde, have you, um, have, you ever, have you ever lied about anything? And he said, yeah. I said, what do you call somebody who lies? And he said, a liar? Yeah. And I said, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Yeah. I said, well, that's called blasphemy, Clyde. And I said, Clyde, have you ever, have you ever, have you ever looked upon a woman with lust in your heart? And, and he said, yes. I said, Jesus says that anyone who looks upon a woman with lust has committed adultery already with her in his heart. I said, what you're telling me, Clyde, is that that if you had to stand before God on judgment day and he judged you by these commandments, would you be found innocent or guilty? And he said, guilty. I said, that's right. Clyde, you're a, a lying, a thieving, a blaspheming, adulterer at heart, and you will be found guilty on judgment day. I said, but guess what? I said, have you ever stood before a judge? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I have too. I said, I got in trouble in court for, for just taking that such with being lighthearted about that, the nature of the courtroom. And I said, but God takes us very seriously. And I said, um, I said, if you ever, you imagine when you were standing in court that day, if somebody stepped in and said, judge, I want to pay Clyde's fine and do Clyde's time. I said, would anybody ever do such a thing like that? And he said, no. And I said, let me tell you, that's exactly what Jesus did. That's what the cross is all about. It's not just something we wear around our, necklace for, around our neck for jewelry, Clyde. That is what Jesus did when he took your place and your punishment as a lawbreaker and just kept explaining that to him. And it's just you could see the light bulbs going off, and he understood very clearly. And so we talked for a little while, and I, I, I'd asked Clyde, I said, Clyde, do you... You have people, 
who ignore you a lot when you ask them for help? He said, sometimes. I said, let me assure you this. If you humble yourself before God and you call upon him, he will never ignore you. Clyde, would you like to put your faith in Jesus Christ today? I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't against it. He just wanted to think about that. And so we just sat and talked, and I was like, man, can I just pray with you? And we just sat there and prayed. We just sat there and prayed. I think about him every day. Um, and the coolest thing was at the very end, this was the first guy I did this with. And I said, Clyde, I got a lot of family back at home that misses me, and I miss them. And I sure would like to see this, them to meet you. And I said, I said, you mind if I just take a picture with you? And, man, he lit up. And that just made his, it seemed like it made his day. Put your neck on the line and risk it for the gospel. Yes, it's risky. Yes, it's uncomfortable. It's going to be scary, but it's worth it, church. Let me close in prayer, and I want to offer a response time for us afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that set me free. 17 years ago, not only freed me from drugs and alcohol and all those kinds of things, but freed me from sin, freed me from an eternity separated from you in hell. Father, I pray that that we here as a body of believers at First Baptist Church would catch on fire with enthusiasm so that people would come for miles to watch us burn that we would herald the good news, that we would be unashamed of the gospel, that we would step out at Valero or Harps or in Conway at Walmart and put our necks on the line and give a track to somebody or talk to somebody about Jesus, recognizing that 150,000 people die every day and some are going to enter into eternity quicker than we or they know it. But also, your return is near, and there's no going back when you come. And we need to do something. Lord, I pray that we'd be a part of that great commission and storing up those treasures in heaven like nobody else. Lord, you please use us and give us that fire to share the gospel and make your name famous from here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.